0: back again to the 5 Things I Read This Week podcast. I'm your host, Zach Small. The 5 Things I Read This Week podcast is a division of Entering the Public Square, a blog founded on the sincere belief that every Christian should understand the importance of discussing Christianity in the marketplace of ideas. You can find it on enteringthepublicsquare.com. You can also find this podcast in the iTunes Store or in the Google Play Store. Or on my website, enteringthepublicsquare.com So there's plenty of ways to reach out if you want to, you know, check out more content I produce. And if you want to share this podcast with anyone, I would be more than grateful. It's always nice to know I'm talking to someone and not just talking to myself. Because that's awkward. So last week was a bit of a, a random grab bag, if you will. And that was fun. This week is going to be a little bit more focused, I think. We're talking a lot about millennials, we're talking a lot about morality, we're talking a lot about natural law, so I think you are going to like it. The first one we're jumping off into, we're going to set the tone for today. I saw it on my Daily Medium newsletter. It was written by a guy named Jaron, no last name, on October 17th on Medium. And his article was called, Why I Stopped Going to Church. Now, Jaron, he sounds like the type of guy who was pretty happy with his church. He said he enjoyed it. He liked Jesus. He really got a lot out of church at the beginning. But here's the the top highlight, if you will, from the medium passage, and it really is the, the crux of this entire article. I stopped going to church because I needed to discover what God sounds like without someone else's voice. For years, my religion and the way I worshipped was presented to me from the perspective of someone else. It began with my mother, emphasized by the choir and congregation, and cemented by the pastor. And he goes on to talk about how he loved going to church in the beginning. It was great. He felt fulfilled. He felt convicted. But then, at the end, he just didn't really see why it was worth it. But it comes back to that main point. He needed to discover what God sounds like without someone else's voice. Now, this is really hard. And, Jaren, if you've ever listened to this, I'd love to talk to you. You can email me on my website. I'd love to, you know, maybe talk about some of the reasons why I still think Christianity is true, and why I think you should as well. I'd love to talk to you. I think it would be great. Um, But the hard part here is this is the danger when our Christianity is based on perhaps an experience, perhaps on family tradition, perhaps on kind of our, as Jaron talks about, kind of a psychological need when we perceive that religion is something I need to anchor ourselves if it has a utilitarian purpose. But, I don't know about you, and I don't know a lot about other Christians, but, when... God speaks to us, it is generally in his own voice. It's not by someone else's voice, it's by God's voice. He speaks to us through his holy scripture. So, by default, I mean, my religion, my Christianity, isn't something that comes to me in my own voice, and it's not even something that comes to me in my family, or my church, it comes in God's voice through His Word to us. That's the main way God communicates. Now, there's certainly churches and families and things like that that are meant to reinforce our faith who might encourage us along the way. We do this Christian walk in community. We don't just... Act as lone wolves who kind of are left on an island with no life raft. We're here, community together. We have pastors and wise people to guide us. We have mentors. We have things like that. But fundamentally, we're here because we're following God. And if we're following God, by default, it's going to be in God's voice. It's not how to be in my voice, because my voice is sinful. My voice is a fallen human being. And if I'm following my own voice, it's a problem. I need to hear from God's voice directly. And so, you know, Sharon, I hear you, man. I, I feel like as I read your story, you're, you're kind of on the same page with me. I feel like you want to hear God without the people kind of interpreting it for you. And I get that, but at the same time, that's what Christianity is all about. Our our whole perspective on the Christian faith is really God speaking through his word to us. And so, you know, if you ever listen to this, I handed out your vote, but if you ever do... You know, please reach out. I'd love to talk a little bit more. You wrote a great article here. And I think people would do well to read it. So if you want to check it out, it was on Medium, October 17th, written by Jaron, J-E-R-O-N. And it's called Why I Stopped Going to Church. Moving on then, we're with this idea of, you know, what... What's church good for? Why ought we to church? I suggested that church is good because it helps us work on our Christian walk. We have guidance from our pastors and from other Christians around us who might be in place specifically in our lives to help move us in the right direction. We have the benefit of the community. Because we're in church. God designed it that way. Jesus had disciples that followed him. They had fellowship. It's an innate part of what Christians are. We see the church in Acts. So we're, we're talking then about organized religion. We're talking about church. And this next article comes from Intellectual Takeout. It's from Annie Holmquist. I mentioned her stuff a lot. She's a good writer. I enjoy her stuff. And I don't even plan to do it. I read the articles, and I'm like, oh. And this one was written by Annie Holmpress, too, which is super cool. Um, So, Annie, I hope you appreciate a little uh, free publicity here. But her article was written on October 17th also, on Intellectual Takeout. Does Morality Depend on Religion? So there was a recent uh, Pew survey that came out on morality. In 2011, 49% of people said it wasn't necessary to believe in God in order to be moral and to have good values. So 49% now in 2017, 56% say it's not necessary to believe in God in order to have good values. and. We hear this a lot, right? I talk a lot about objective morality when I write. And a lot of people will immediately counter, well, are you saying, you know, just because I might be an atheist or whatever, that I can't be a moral person? And the answer I come up with is, well, no. You can still do moral things. But HomeQuest does a really good job here. She pulls out a quote from "Your Christianity, from C.S. Lewis, and it's talking about how Christians are a little different and why our perspective on this whole issue is radically different than those in the world around us. That's why the Christian is in a different position from other people who are trying to be good. They hope, by being good, to please God if there is one, which, if you're this is just me now, this is an atheist, obviously not, but anyway, going back to Lewis, they hope by being good to please God if there is one, or if they think there is not, at least they hope to deserve approval from good men. But the Christian thinks any good he does comes from the Christ's life inside him. He does not think God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. And Holmes doesn't really mention this right away, but if you think about our sin nature, we have this fallen tendency that we make mistakes, we mess up, and we're not good. And Christians realize that about the world. We're under no illusions to pretend that we're somehow... ...great people. We have this innate understanding that there's something wrong with the world, there's something wrong with us. But we have hope. Because we know... ...that with Christ inside of us, we actually can do what we couldn't do before. We can love our neighbor as we love ourselves in a supernatural way. As home Price says right here... In other words, Lewis believes that living a moral life is an easier go for the Christian because he has an internal power to rely on in the quest to become a better individual. And you see this all the time when we talk about Christianity. You hear about the fruit of the Spirit. You'll see these evidences manifested in the life of one who truly is following Jesus Christ. And those are good things. Those are moral things. So you see this morality coming out more prevalently in the life of the Christian, not because Christians themselves are any better, but because we have God working inside of us. It's God who makes a difference. It's not me. It's not you. But like I said before, I'm still a fallen guy. I mess up as much as the next guy. No question about that. I would never dispute that because I know there's a lot that's wrong with me. There's a lot... That's wrong with you. There's a lot that's wrong with all of us. And so going back to this question then, do you need religion to be moral? Or believe in God, I mean, to be moral? The short answer is, well, no. You can do good things and not believe in God. That's evidentially clear. You see people run into burning buildings and save children. And they have no faith commitment. That's a good thing. They have a good value. They value the life of that child. That's moral. So it's irresponsible to say that you cannot do moral things if you do not believe in God. But the thing is, if you want to have a pattern of it, and if you want to have... I'm not even a pattern of it, but if you want to have an internally consistent hope of consistent reason if you will there's actually a framework for why we do good things in a Christian worldview and why we ought to do good things. We do them because they are the things that God wants us to do. Therefore when Jesus is within us, he's encouraging us and helping us, empowering us to do the things that are consistent with the will of his father in heaven. If you do not have that internal kind of framework, you still can do good things. I'm not so I don't want someone to take this and freak out and say, Oh, Zach hates all atheists and he thinks they're all evil and they do terrible things because that's obviously not true. There are plenty of amazing things that are done by non-Christians, but my motivation is, why are you doing those things? And I think without God in you, and without trying to work in a way that is consistent with the will of God, you're missing out on the whole benefit, the whole picture. Like Home Heart says... It's an easier go for the Christian because of this internal power. And if you don't have... You can do good things and not understand the reason why you're doing them. So they're still good, but it's not consistent with your road That's a hard thing. I don't think people are going to like it. But it is true. If, for example, the meaning in life is to make myself happy, there's no reason I should be charitable. But I still might be charitable because I'm made in the image of God, I know other people are made in the image of God, and I do good things because of that recognition, but it's not consistent with my worldview. So... Wrapping this all up, I like Annie Holmplish, she's a good You'll see this on Intellectual Takeout, October 17, 2017. Does morality depend on religion? To summarize everything I've just kind of rambled said, I think it's pretty evident that you don't need to be religious to do moral actions. However, I think to do them in a way that is consistent with your worldview, I think you need to have some type of objective religious truth, specifically Christian truth, embedded in you, or you're going to be going against the worldview you espouse at some point because some of the right things to do will contradict with worldviews such as being selfless when my worldview tells me that I'm number one. So we're going to stick on this theme of objective morality, though, and we're moving over to National Review, The Abolition of Mad Men, written by Justin Dyer. It was back on October 6, 2016. So it was a while ago, but I just saw it this week, and I wanted to talk about it. C.S. Lewis, as you know, wrote The Abolition of Man, probably my second favorite nonfiction book behind the Bible, I think. It honestly ought to be required reading for just about everyone. And Lewis, as we know, in that book, made a case for objective morality. And here's a quote from the article from Dyer. One of its main contentions in abolition is that moral subjectivism ultimately undermines the key concepts at the base of all our political institutions. Natural rights, the value of the individual, the common good, human dignity, and social justice are meaningful only in the light of what Lewis called the human tradition of value. And the entire human tradition of value is really What is at stake in this otherwise academic debate? So, let's think about this. We just got over talking about does morality require religion? One thing that religion provides, specifically Christianity, but Islam, Judaism also provide this. They give us some type of objective framework for morality. There's no claim that, oh, you define your own truth. You choose your own right and wrong. It doesn't really matter what God says, because you can, you know, choose your own path, and if you want to do that, go for it. There's there's always some rules. I've never found really a true relativist who lets everything go. I, I don't know that that's someone I'd particularly want to meet, if they're absolutely in no their boundaries. But, in general, people tend to say, well... You know, do your own thing, be free. That's different than what we see here that Dyer wrote about Lewis and the abolition of man. At the base of our political institution, we assume that there are things like natural rights. We assume that individuals are valuable, the common good. We like human dignity, we like social justice. But it's only meaningful if There's this thing, the human tradition of value. Now, again, that's an objective truth. It has to be a fact, or we have to at least run into nothingness. If everything is relative, if everything is subjective, then humans have no innate value. Natural rights mean nothing. The individual has no value. There's no point in the common good because how can you say that the common good is actually good? The common good might be bad. Humans might as well not have dignity because there's nothing... If it's all subjective, they don't need to be dignified. (laughs) Like, why is being treated with dignity any better than not. No, innately you're saying this is ridiculous. Of course natural rights are good. And that that should be just self evident. And I agree. I agree it certainly should be. But if you strip away objective truth you can't make that assumption anymore. It's irresponsible. And so Dyer Ben writes this kind of summary. In his own time, Lewis offered both a dire prognosis and a simple remedy for our moral illness. Unless we return to the crude and nursery-like belief in objective values he insisted, we perish. That's about that, to be honest with you. And that's what I was just saying. If we take away this belief that there are some things that are true about our universe, there's nothing left to be perish. We're not significant. We're not valuable. It doesn't matter. I don't need to treat you with dignity. You don't need to treat me with dignity. There are no natural rights. Who cares if I have the right to life or liberty? It, it doesn't matter. Freedom? Meh. It's no better than not freedom. Captivity is just as good. Why? Oh, because nothing is better if we don't have an objective value that says, no, 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 no we agree that freedom is better. Where do we get these objective truths? Some people call it natural law. Some people call it the law of nature's God. I would suggest we get it from God, the Christian God. I believe there's good evidence to believe that God is real. And I believe that there's good evidence that these concepts such as natural rights, the value of the individual, the common good, human dignity, and social justice come right out of the pages of the Bible. There's no coincidence that these things are ingrained in our Western society, built upon the Judeo-Christian foundation. So if you want to read this article, The Abolition of Mad Men, it's pretty old, October 6, 2016, written by Justin Dyer in the National Review. Now, moving on to people who don't always loved this idea of objective truth for the millennials, like me. I'm a millennial. I, I guess I might be an uncommon millennial. But the New York Times had an article this week. Last Sunday, October 14, 2017. It was or last Saturday, I'm sorry. October 14. It was written by Clay Routledge. Why are millennials wary of freedom? So Routledge talks about this study where only 30% of Americans born after 1980 believe it's essential to live in the Democratic country, compared to 72% of Americans before World War II. In 95, 16% of Americans in their late teens and early adulthood thought democracy was a bad idea. In 2011, it was 24%. In 2005... of Pew Research found that 40% of millennials believe the government should regulate certain types of speech. Only 27% of Gen Xers, 20% of baby boomers, and 12% of the silent generation share that opinion. In 2016, a Gallup survey found that a majority of both Democratic and Republican students believe colleges should be able to restrict speech that is purposely offensive to certain groups. A survey of student attitudes concerning free speech released on Wednesday by the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education found that 66% of Democratic and 47% of Republican students believe there are times a college should withdraw a campus speaker's invitation after it's announced. And a survey published by the Brookings Institute in September found that 20% of Democratic And 22% of Republican students agreed it was acceptable for student groups to use violence to prevent a person from speaking. So clearly, millennials don't quite see freedom in the way that previous generations did, and they're pretty nervous about it. In fact, maybe we should, you know, pull back those offensive ideas because that, I'm not comfortable with that. Democrats and Republicans, so we're talking across the board here. I'm not trying to pick on a party. Those are all the statistics that Routledge mentioned. But here's the thing, and Routledge draws a connection that I think is pretty valuable. He says, fear, in all its forms, is at the heart of these issues. Fear of failure, ridicule, discomfort. Ostracism, uncertainty? Of course, these fears haunt all of us, regardless of demographics, but that's precisely the point. Our culture isn't preparing young people to grapple with what are ultimately unavoidable threats. Indeed, despite growing up in a physically safer and kinder society than past generations did, young Americans today report higher levels of anxiety. Fear pushes people to adopt a defensive posture. When people feel anxious, they're less open to diverse ideas and opinions and less forgiving and tolerant of those they disagree with. When people are afraid, they cling to the certainty of the world they know and avoid taking the physical, emotional, and intellectual risks. In short, fear causes people to privilege psychological security over liberty. Man, this is tough. I'm, in general, pretty open to free speech. Because, in my opinion, as a believer in the market, also, I think the marketplace of ideas operates a lot like any kind of economic market. The good ideas are going to rise to the top. The bad ones are going to die because they're bad ideas. Just like a bad product fails in the market, I think bad ideas are going to fail in the marketplace of ideas. I don't think that means we shut down the ideas. I don't think that means that we kind of hide them away. We let them come out. And then we demolish the bad idea. We show why it's wrong. And if people are truly reasonable, they're going to come to the conclusion, just like I have and just like you have, that there's a better way. They'll find the right way. So, see, I don't necessarily see a reason to be afraid of freedom. I don't necessarily see a reason to run into this fear. But I think Routledge hits the nail on the head. We get so nervous about people disagreeing with us. We get nervous about a society that might not see everything the way we do. We don't want to be uncertain. We don't want people to pick on us. We don't want to be ostracized. So what do we do? We block out the idea rather than face it head on. Rather than take the challenge and overcome it, we would prefer just to never face it at all. And so how do we stop from facing it? Well, like Rutledge said, apparently, what was it? 22%? Of Republican students. And 20% of Democratic students. Thought it was acceptable for student groups. To use violence. To prevent a person from speaking. I mean come on. So. I really don't like what you're about to say. So you know what? I'm justified in using violence. Is that where we're going? That's tragic. It, it's a horrible thing. And yet. Some people just don't get it. They don't understand if we shut down freedom and we quiet everyone we disagree with, what happens when they come for us? I mean, I might be in power now and maybe I'm on a campus where I'm not going to get punished for having a crazy, you know, demonstration and riot and protest. But what happens when I maybe move to a different state where my views aren't so well embraced? are home for me. Isn't it better to have freedom everywhere and to let true intellectual debate have its day? If you have a terrible idea, show why it's a terrible idea. Help educate other people. Talk to them. That's what I try to do on my website. I write about ideas. I very rarely call out other people. I do sometimes, to be fair. I really do. And sometimes I feel like it's necessary but in general I try to present positive alternatives I would rather give you a good idea than tear down a bad idea because let's say you have a view and let's say I'm amazing which I'm not but let's say I am and I tear it down but I never give you something to refill that void now you just have a hole in your belief system you know that the way you had before has faults but you don't know why something else is better, you have nothing to fill in the gap, I'd rather show, or try to show a better way so that you're able to not be left hanging I mean, that's what I want I want to have a fulfilling world view and I would like the same for you you don't see that here with the millennials they're they're content ...just to block out the world around them and pretend it's not there. Even if they're wrong, they don't want to hear it. They'd rather be secure. I'm just not that way. And I don't think humans are created to be that way. We're sinful creatures. I I talked about that a lot tonight. Not sure why I wasn't planning on it. This is just hitting me right now. But... If we're simple creatures, I don't know that the best thing for me to do is to turn into myself more and more because there's a lot of darkness in there. Maybe it's better to expose it to the light. I was in a Bible study on Wednesday night and we were talking about Matthew chapter 10, and it's kind of interesting how, again, I wasn't planning on talking about this. It's funny how this stuff comes up, actually, because I don't, I I didn't think I would mention it. But we're talking about Matthew chapter 10, anyway, and near the end of the chapter, it's in verse 26, Jesus is talking to the disciples not to be afraid of... Yeah, the people or going to challenge them and do not be afraid of them for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. Would I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight, or the whispered in your ear proclaim from the roof? Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot heal the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. I'm... Let's get ideas out there. That's the only way we're going to challenge what's inside of people, what's inside of us. If I'm wrong about something, I'd rather you tell me, and I'd rather be right. You know, I'd rather find out I'm wrong, correct myself, and become right. That would be great rather than continue in this darkness. And you see this in that verse 26 don't be afraid of them, for if nothing concealed. They'll not be disclosed. Stuff is going to come out good or bad, true or false. So let's maybe stay on the side of freedom. Millennials like me, maybe we shouldn't be so terrified. So this is Why Are Millennials were your of Freedom. It was in the New York Times, written by Clay Routledge, on October 14, 2017. Man, this is a long podcast, I'm sorry. But I hope you're sticking with me, because we got one more. On um, Millennials. How Millennials Behave Generation Meh, from the American Conservative, written by Teresa Mole, on October 16, 2017. So... We all know the stereotypes of Millennials. Lazy and titled. Ben Bureau wrote about Millennials being the worst generation. The Washington Post had an article. Five related reasons to hate Millennials. Uh, a business insider article called Millennials. Infamously narcissistic and titled, Lazy and arrogant. So, you know, people don't love Millennials. I'm a Millennial. I get it. But there is something significant about Millennials. And this is what Teresa Mole writes out. She says, The traditional values of faith, family, and freedom that have been the basis of American culture since its founding were replaced for millennials by relativism, the self, and fascism. The rebellious American spirit that prompted our patriots to overthrow the rebel, or the, the British caused James Deal to rebel well without a cause and drove Jack Kerouac across the country to produce his fascinatingly frenzied accounts of the beaten generation like extinguished and millennials because our curiosity about anything but ourselves failed to be nurtured. And then he moves on, or she, sorry, moves on to say, millennials don't know how to rebel, but in their defense, we never really had anything to rebel against, because the generation that invented the free love movement didn't have known it's vocabulary. It's an interesting thought, and I hadn't really, I hadn't really done much reflecting on this, but it is true. You always hear about rebellion. You hear about one generation who doesn't like the ways of their parents, then they challenge it and they create a new way. Sometimes they come back, sometimes they don't. But for us as millennials, we're being brought up in a culture where... It's really, go your own way, do your own thing. So how do you rebel against that? And if we have nothing to rebel against, that's kind of boring. We don't have any challenge. We don't have any rising... As Mole writes later, there's no arguing with meh because you can't debate feelings. The 60s radicals may have come to the wrong conclusions. But at least they were arguing, or at least they were asking the right questions. I mean, what? It's true. We've given up objective truth. There's nothing to rebel against. The generation before us was the free love generation. Anything goes, do what you want. How do you rebel against that? And if you don't rebel against that, How do you do anything kind of exciting? How do you challenge the status quo? There is no status quo. So, what do you then do? If nothing's right, nothing's wrong? No bad, no good? Well, I think that's the thought I'm going to wrap up with tonight. We need to get back to this concept of objective morality. If we as millennials are not doing something that future generations did, or that past generations did, what's different now? Why are we developing these different characteristics that perhaps our parents or grandparents didn't? Is there something maybe in culture that shifted? And in doing so, maybe it's damaging us. Maybe society has been rolling along the same way Now we see radical turmoil all over, and we don't really like how it's going. So rather than build these bubbles, like the New York Times article talks about, where we want to shut down people who don't agree with us, maybe, just maybe, we need to get back to objective truth and freedom. Maybe we need to get back to this idea of there is right, there is wrong, And it's something we can talk about, and it's something we should talk about. If we do that, then I think we'll have a healthier culture, we'll have a healthier society, and in the long run, we will all benefit from it. So, sorry I helped you along tonight. I hope, though, that you got something out of this. I hope you'll check out the articles, some good stuff, and until next week, see you later.